It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Boston Loose Baseball episode 19. It is a big week for the Nationals. Not because they're coming home to play the Mariners and start a homestand. That's fun too. But we got the Major League Baseball draft this weekend in Los Angeles and the Futures game from Javez Ravine as well. We're going to talk on this Boston Loose Baseball episode with Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs who wrote recently about the Nats minor league system. He's also their draft expert. What is the top of the board looking like? Plus, the Athletics' Keith Law just put out a mock draft. Who does he have the Nats taking at number five? We will find out. Those two draft experts who are gurus when it comes to prospects as well going to be on the show. So a lot of intel coming your way from them as we look at the amateur side of things and the minor league side for the Nationals today. Also, Juan Soto to the All-Star Game, Josh Bell snubbed, and some mid-season awards. We're busy. It's a lengthy episode. A lot of info for you, so enjoy it. Episode 19, Bustin' Loose Baseball, starts right now. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball. I'm Grant, he's Danny, and Darius is alongside. You will hear from him in just a bit. Danny, the Nationals got themselves swept over the weekend by the Atlanta Braves. But Juan Soto's on fire, so that's worth tuning in for. How about hits in 13 in a row? And he's been on base in 20 in a row. It took a little while, but it is officially Soto season. It's happening, right? We talked that that this that this would come. It was clear. Just a matter of time for someone of that talent. And the keys to me, you could see it, that opposite field home run off a breaking ball that was off the plate is just vintage Juan Soto. As the weather gets hot and the ball starts carrying a little bit more, I think he was discouraged early on where a couple of his oppo shots, you know, were warning track flyouts or, or, or something to that effect, and he was trying to do too much. He doesn't have to try to do too much. Some guys do. Some guys that don't have that ability have to try really, really, really hard and muscle up, and they sacrifice batting average, and they sacrifice their ability to put the ball in place sometimes. He doesn't. He is one of those incredible, elite one millionth of 1% type hitters 
Guys in their prime who can do that, like Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, Juan Soto is in that club. I expect him to kind of continue this red-hot run. He'll finish where he normally finishes, right? Right around 275 to 290, somewhere in there, uh, with you know mid-30s home runs. The, the run totals, the walks are going to be there. He's too good not to have a streak like this. He has bumped his average about 30 points north over the last couple of weeks. He bottomed out at 214 back on June 24th or something like that. Since then, he's raised his average to up over 240 now. In fact, he's hitting 243 as the Nats get ready to play the Mariners at Nats Park tomorrow. 17 home runs, five more than anybody on the team, and 73 walks. Here's what's crazy about his walk total. A couple things. Number one, Juan Soto has walked 20 more times than he's struck out. Absolutely unheard of in today's Major League Baseball. That in and of itself is one of the craziest stats you're going to see or hear from the first half. Nobody does that. It is borderline impossible in today's game, and Soto pulls it off. Partially, sure, because of the lack of other quality options in the lineup. So there are times where you saw it yesterday, extra innings. He doesn't even go to the batter's box because he's intentionally walked and put at first base rather than getting an at-bat with the game on the line with the Nationals having a lead-taking run at second base. But also because he spits on pitches, he's got plate discipline. This is one of the most accomplished young career, now just 23 years old, eyes at the plate that we've ever seen. And that's a big part of why he walks as much as he does. I I looked this up yesterday, though. So right now, I mentioned he has 20 more walks than anybody else in the sport, right? insanity. You don't see that. I went through every single year over the last 15 or so years. There have been, I think it was one season that Joey Votto had where someone walked 20 more times than anybody else in baseball. It just doesn't happen. But the last time anybody's done it in back-to-back years was 0-1-0-2 Barry Bonds when he was roided Which out makes of his sense. mind. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Quotes, uh, and he was hitting 73 home runs. 20 more walks than anyone else in the sport. Last year, he had over 30 more walks than anybody else in the sport. So if he finishes where he is right now, it'll be him and Bonds in the 2000s that have done this. It really is crazy, man. And it's just funny that we think about him having had this down year so far, which to some extent is true. There was a while where he was in a big rut, and he wasn't Juan Soto. But his OPS is 871. It's essentially identical to Josh Bell's, who everybody's raving about should be in the All-Star game. He's got more home runs. He's got, you know, 10 fewer RBI than Josh Bell. But it's just, it's funny based on expectations, like how we viewed his season. And then I would say 90 to 95% of big leaguers would kill for this year every single season. Yeah, it's his own fault. You set the bar so high, right? We're, we're sitting there going, what's wrong with him? Well, he just, he's having like a bad month or, or, or kind of whatever, hitting in some bad luck as well. I mean, that that ridiculously poor start in terms of runners and scoring position, I think, kind of hurt our perception of what's going on with his year. But your 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 walk point is actually a great one. And, and here's where I, I want to delve into that for a second. Because you combine this perfect storm of not much doing in the lineup, and the beneficiary has been Josh Bell, right, who's getting pitches to hit, and he's hitting them. He's doing an incredible job. Is has is having an all-star caliber season. Whether he makes it or not depends on what happens in front of him. But Bell's having an excellent year, his his best year probably of his career when you, when you go total offensive package. Although I put up that 37 homer year in Pittsburgh that led to the trade. But anyway, he's, he's hitting really, really well right there in his prime. Not much around him, not much you're scared of. You combine that with a... Well wise beyond his years, preternatural batting eye. And the guy that that evokes is Barry Bonds. 
When Barry Bonds was a skinny kid at Arizona State, he had this. When he came into the league with the Pittsburgh Pirates and he was a 30-30-40-40 caliber guy, he had this. Before he turned into this home run hitting machine that every time he got a strike, he basically either homered or, you know, uh, hit it sharply somewhere. The best hitting we've ever seen was that time, for, for in, in, in my opinion. More so than, you know, Ted Williams, you know, smacking out a 400 average. I know that's controversial, but 73 home runs. Someone that can do that with only seeing you know a strike or two every other game is just unbelievable. Soto's got that same ability. We saw that with Bryce Harper here that one year um, when you know this 2015 team didn't have a single other guy that had 20 home runs, and not only did Bryce Harper get walked a bleep ton, but whenever he did get a strike, he was doing damage with it. That's that much more difficult. If people are just pounding the strike zone against you, you get in the rhythm, you get up to the plate, you're like Luis Garcia, you find something, you hit something, you you know you take your turn around the bases. You don't see a strike, but maybe once every other at bat. It's really, really hard to then stay in rhythm and keep doing that. So it's this perfect storm of walks, and we're watching Soto do that in in real time, and it's uncanny. When he's in one of these hot stretches, though, one of these runs, where you get to watch him have these at-bats, and normally it's accompanied by the shuffle, and he's just so confident, and you can tell. He knows when he's in the batter's box that he's going to get on base, which he's doing you know, two times, three times a game during this recent run here. It's There's nothing else like it for me. As a fan, it's just so rewarding. It's so awesome. I mentioned that he's hit safely in 13 straight. I mean, he was 17 of 41 going into Sunday with four doubles, three homers, six batted in, 14 walks, 13 runs scored during that streak. Second longest active streak in Major League Baseball behind Jose Altuve's 14-game hitting streak. And that 20-game on base streak, 500 on base during that time with 19 hits and, and 18 walks. In that process, second longest active streak in baseball behind C.J. Crone going into Sunday's play as well, who had been on base in, in 20 in a row. Soto's longest ever is 21. So if he can get on base in his next game, he ties that. If he can get on base in two straight, he'll have been on base in more games in a row right now in this stretch during this down season than he ever has been before. He leads Major League Baseball in a bunch of categories. Second in the National League now with an on-base that's approaching 400. So he's right back to where we thought he would be. And he's in the All-Star game for a second straight year out in L.A. He won't start. It'll take some help to get him in the starting lineup. What I'm curious about is, and we haven't heard this to my knowledge, unless you you know something I don't today that came down. I wonder if he's going to be back in the home run derby. Because remember, him versus Shohei Otani last year when they had to go to overtime and they were going back and forth hitting bombs, that was one of the best parts of the Derby. And everyone will remember it for Pete Alonso going back-to-back and eventually, did he beat Soto or Mancini in the final? I think it might have been Mancini. I feel like it was Mancini, but they all run together. But Soto really was a big part of that event. He's such a huge star. I wonder if he'll get an opportunity to do that again because... It didn't hinder him last year. He came out of the derby hitting bombs, and he had one of the great second halves ever. No, you've seen some of the guys never be the same. I mean, I don't think Bobby Abreu hit more than like two or three home runs after he had that unbelievable and round in still Philadelphia. Use that. It's like the uh, we cover the, the commanders in D.C., but they used to be called the Redskins. They spent $100 million, Dan Snyder did, in his first offseason as owner in 2000. And for a couple years after that, he would buy anybody who was a free agent. And still, 20-plus years later, Everyone acts like that's what they do when it's been a long, long <laughs> time. Right. Uh, Producer Darris, you've got the numbers on the finals last year. It was Pete Alonzo who became victorious in the finals over Trey, Trey Mancini. Trey Mancini hit 22 home runs. Pete Alonzo hit 23. Good that pull. was awesome. And I was actually, weird story. So I was in Colorado at Coors Field. I got tickets that night from one of the guys throwing in the home run derby to a hitter. 
I won't say who or out them. But because of that, I was near all of the families. So I was sitting literally next to Cedric Mullins' family the night before he was an all-star. Right in front of me was uh, Chris Bassett's wife, and uh, next to her was Matt Olson's wife. It was crazy. But we watched the Home Run Derby with the Mancinis the night before the all-star game. That's pretty and, neat. Yeah. So, so and, his, and then Mr. Mancini did pretty good. <laughs> exactly. So his mom and his dad just sitting right there and watching them see their son who had just overcome cancer in the home run derby. I mean, there were no dry awesome. eyes in, in that area. Uh, it was pretty, pretty neat. All right. So uh, no Josh Bell in the All-Star game. Let's get to that for a second. Highest OPS plus among players not initially selected to the game. He got snubbed. You could say that Austin Riley should be there. Ty France of the Mariners. Freddie Freeman of the Dodgers. Anthony Rizzo of the Yankees. They all have cases as well. But Matt Wyrick, NBCSW, posted this. Bell, 154 OPS+, plus, better than Riley's 146, France's 144, Freeman's 142, Rizzo's 141. Maybe one of the biggest snubs. Loaded first base field. We didn't expect him to make it. We talked about it on the pod a couple weeks ago because you knew Crone was going, because Goldschmidt's been ridiculous. He has had, statistically, maybe the fourth, fourth best season because Alonso's there as well in the National League at first base. But if one or two guys... For whatever reason, can't or don't participate in the game, I could see Josh Bell being next man up type candidate in the NL. I think it's well put. He is a worthy candidate. He is. And I don't think he should be in over the guys that you listed ahead of him. And that's not a reflection on Josh Bell. It's a reflection of Paul Goldschmidt having a renaissance here. I mean, he looked to be in decline for a couple seasons in, in St. Louis. A really good player, a really useful player. But this is now a few years ago, Arizona, Paul Goldschmidt, tearing the league in half. C.J. Crone, as you said, is having an unbelievable first half. There are other guys that might make it ahead of him even still, but an all-star worthy season. And good for Josh Bell, man. I, I mean, first impressions matter so much. To your point, like you, you referenced earlier, again, what happened the first time, you know, Dan Snyder bought the Commanders and went on a spending spree. People still think that's what he does or that's what the team does. Josh Bell got off to the roughest of rough starts. I mean, he couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat when he first got here after he got himself uh, COVID, after a ridiculous spring training, by the way, when he was just hitting nukes all over the place. And people still don't kind of give him his proper respect. People still sort of don't understand what they're watching here in terms of this guy. He is really, really, really good at this point. Again, I think he's sacrificing a little bit of power and a little bit of you know, kind of Adam Dunn in his swing just to make more barrel contact and, and sort of now the line drives are carrying out. His, his bat-to-ball has been unbelievable. I have been beyond impressed with Josh Bell. Great dude, and I think he could be a really useful piece for a contender. You know, His path may not be at first base for the All-Star game, maybe as a, you know, another DH or something like that. I'd love to see him go because it'd be cool for the guy who's done you know everything right since he's been here in Washington, D.C., but an All-Star worthy season for sure. One big difference for him this year when you're talking about sacrificing some power maybe is strikeouts. He has 40 walks and 50 strikeouts. Those two numbers being so close together are surprising. And only 50 Ks and coming up on 90 games now is really impressive for him. This is a guy for his career that has struck out about 18% of the time. He has struck out as recently as two years ago 27% of the time. Uh, when he's played for a full season and been healthy with a longer sample, normally he's right around 175 to 19% strikeout rate. This year, 13.5%. It's that low? I didn't yeah. realize that. He's cut it down three full percentage points from one year ago, from 17.8 to thir- – in fact, let me do better math here. 13.6 from 17.8, 4 4%. That's a massive deal. Cut. Now, maybe that does mean a little bit less power, perhaps. Or, you know, I- I'm not sure. He's also been – 
hitting with more luck. You know, batting average balls in play generally is going to be close to 300. Last year it was 276. The year before that it was 273. Well, that luck he didn't have is is coming back it's to the roost now. here. I mean, he, he's at three twenty six this season in BABIP. So, you know, he's he's kind of getting paid off for some of the, the bad luck the last couple of years. But, yeah, it's just been a tremendous season for him. And hopefully he'll join Soto ultimately in L.A. anymore, as you said. So many guys often don't go to the All-Star game. All right, without further ado then, let's give out some individual awards for the Nationals this season. First half awards. Let's start. With the Cy Young Award for the Washington Nationals, who are you giving it to? I'll go Josiah Gray. Even though there's been a couple hiccup starts, there's been a couple bad. Uh, I think recently he had a, uh, a start where I think he gave up seven runs and, and, and not too distant of a time. He had that rough start against the Dodgers. But overall, the ratios are there. Uh, the, the strikeout numbers are there. The hits per nine are there. The strikeouts per walk. When he's right, you start to see the, the the damage that he can do with those multiple breaking pitches. I mean, there are times where it's almost like one of those, um, you go to the ballpark and you see one of those races, whether it's like the three hats and the different color hats and who's going to win the race. And sometimes it's the curveball doing the most damage. Lately, I feel like it's been the slider. His fastball, if he develops something else to kind of pitch off that fastball, it'll start to play up a bit. But you can see at times when guys are looking for that breaking ball and that fastball up in the zone, that 94-95 plays like it's 100. He's been their most consistent arm. There have been other guys that have had probably better you know, little runs here and there, but he has been their best and most consistent pitcher in my opinion. Yeah, I'll go Josiah Gray as well. He's been really good, and also I don't know that there's another option, to be completely honest, which speaks to – where the pitching staff is at. I mean, Corbin's ERA, while higher than his FIP still, is close to six. Fetty's earned run average after a rough one last time out is over five. Yoan Adone's ERA, he tacked on an extra point to his touchdown in 14 starts. It's 7.1 worst among regular starters. Aaron Sanchez, when he was starting, really struggled. Paolo Espino's been okay, but he doesn't miss any bats and you know doesn't get deep into outings at all. And the only other guys that have started games are Tatro and, and Josh Rogers, Evan Lee, and Erasmo Ramirez. So th- there's really no contender in terms of starting pitching. If you looked at the bullpen, maybe the runner-up would be somebody like Kyle Finnegan, even though he's got an inflated ERA, gave up the lead trying to go two innings against the Braves the other day in Atlanta on Sunday. You know, he at least strikes out more batters than he pitches in innings, 41 Ks, 34 innings. Cishik uh, has not been consistent. Rainey at times has dominated. He's got 36 Ks and 30 innings. He'd be my second-place finisher, Rainey would be. I I think I would go with Carl Edwards Jr., weirdly enough. Rainey's thrown in a couple more games, but Edwards, who strikes out a batter per inning, has a a much lower whip than Cishik, Finnegan, and Rainey in the bullpen. So my ballot would probably be Gray 1, Edwards 2, Rainey 3. The only reason I flip Rainey and Edwards, Edwards is the other nominee that, that I'd have as well, that uh, strikeouts per nine is the only other double-digit strikeout per nine guy that's gotten any innings, uh, meaningful innings for this team. But I think, I think it just speaks to where their staff is at this point, right? I mean, th- the way this organization was built for all those years was you got starting pitching, you got a great chance. Whatever else is happening, right? You could have injuries, you could have um, you know, underperformance, you could have bad months of defense, you could have good months of offense, whatever. You're going to be in an awful lot of games. And those 50-50 games that are close, low-scoring type games, you can eke out some of those. That's how you end up with mid-90s wins for so many years, and that's kind of how they're built. And how far away they are from that right now, I think is... Just sort of obvious as we're talking about who's been their best pitcher. And we're like, the guy with the low four ZRA? That's who we're going with? Just lets you know where they are. 
Yeah, but as you know, I mean, his ERA is like the eighth most important thing about how he's thrown. Oh, totally. And he's he's been really good according to some of the the um, you know strikeout totals and bats missed and swings and misses and those types of things that show off some legitimate stuff. All right, how about your MVP for the Nationals at the plate? I mean, it's probably got to be Bell, who we've talked about a lot, right? Bell's my one seed here. Uh, the, the only, I mean, the the way you get, I, I remember, I can't remember what, who the hitter was. Maybe Tony Gwynn giving a talk or, or or somebody like that. But the way you hit 300 in Major League Baseball is not with hot streaks, right? Those are going to happen. Those are inevitable. Where, you know, where the ball finds some grass or you hit it where they ain't, etc. It's eliminating the down, eliminating the bad months, or limiting those to as short as possible. And Josh Bell's done that. That to me just indicates how consistent a performer he's been. He got off to a torrid start. Then had a little bit of a dip, and then he's out of that dip, it seems like, within just a handful of games. He had his, you know, two for 29 streak or whatever. You know, he, he did that thing that every major league hitter is going to do, but he's been right back out of it, right back to putting barrel to baseball and been really, really consistent. You know, leads the team uh, in, in, in so many categories. I think RBIs, he's up there, second at home runs behind Juan Soto. The, the hits by far and away the team leader in that. So, you know, not necessarily the on-base stuff, but guys in the middle of the order, I'm a little bit less concerned with, with walk totals. I may be sort of a dinosaur in that regard, but middle of the order guys to me are about knocking in runs. And, you know, you could do that with sack flies. You can do that with base hits. No, nobody's ever gone first to home on a walk, you know, and that's part of what his role is. And, and that's something that I think he's been really, really good at this year. I care about two things offensively, really, more than everything else, which is getting on base, so I'm a big walks guy, and slugging. And OPS is really, at the end of the day, what, what it's all about. On base, slug, Soto is great in those two areas, so I think it's actually very close where he is my number two guy on the ballot in terms of MVP. All right, with the two big awards out of the way, let's go biggest surprise. This is positive. This is good. Who's your biggest surprise this year? Carl Edwards. He might fetch something in trade. Not a late-inning reliever, but a guy on a competitive team that could throw a sixth or a seventh in an important type game. This is a guy that you know kind of rebuilt himself and turned himself back into a quality major league reliever. He's been pretty good for the Nats. I'll go Kbert Ruiz. I know he's only hitting 255. He's been a lot better than that offensively. He's also one of the hardest hitters in the league to strike out. For a young bat, that's really impressive. I love the percentage at which he's throwing runners out and how he's handled himself behind the plate. I've just been really impressed by his first full season here in D.C. as a catcher. Looks like a mainstay behind the dish. How about biggest disappointment, Danny? Victor Robles for me. This is a prime year. This is age 25. You should be entering into the best of your career. This is kind of what he's been here for the last three seasons, low 200s batting average, not hitting for much power, not getting on base, not walking a ton, uh, still plus defense in center field, but you know uh, the bat just simply hasn't come along. The high water mark was 2019 where he was perfectly adequate, even fine, uh, with an OPS just under eight. He has been 600 or below each of the last three seasons. My biggest disappointment, Nelson Cruz, just eight home runs through 80 games. Basically a 16-homer pace over a buck 62. And while that's not nothing, they paid him good money. I mean, they didn't yeah. pay anybody this offseason. In fact, they haven't really paid anybody for a couple of offseasons, which is maddening to me. But Cruz is getting double-digit million dollars this year. And more importantly, really, I wanted him to have a huge first half where he hit like 22, 23 homers, something crazy, so that they could have traded him. And if it wasn't going to be that, then at least 17, 18 home runs, big-time power. Then you flip him for something ideal, a good prospect. He hasn't hit enough home runs for them to get a great return. They'll, they'll do okay. He's got a 690 OPS, but he's a ground ball double play machine. It seems like every time he's up in a big spot, he's grounded into a routine. It's just a room service two hopper. Four six three six four three something like that. So it's been tough. Eight home runs, homer in about every thirty six at bats. Just not 
what we wanted. All right, first of two conversations with some experts here. Keith Law is going to tell you, based on his new mock in the Athletic, who the Nats are going to take in the top five coming up in just a little bit. We'll look at the draft at the top of the board more from a Nats perspective with him. But let's learn about some of the names you're going to want to know come draft night this weekend with Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs, who joined us to take a peek at the top of the big board less than one week from the start of the Major League Baseball draft in L.A. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We want insight on the draft. We want to talk about this system. And a guy who knows a whole lot about both of those two things is Eric Longenhagen, who you should be following on Twitter. It's just his last name, at Longenhagen. A Fangraph's lead prospect analyst. I chat with him a bunch on my prospect show on SiriusXM. He's a wealth of knowledge. I know it's a busy time here for you. You're loading up the sleigh on December 20th. We got the draft. We got the futures game and the trade deadline all coming up. So the prospects industry is a buzz. Thanks for hopping on with us, Eric. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's look at the top of the draft board first. I want to just go through some of the names to familiarize our audience before we really zero in on the Nats. Let's talk Drew Jones for a moment. Seems like he's unequivocally the highest ceiling guy in this class, maybe a gold glover. This is Andrew Jones's son. Tell me about the hit tool and the player and, and how big the gap is between he and the other top talents in this class. Yeah, this is sort of similar to how Byron Buxton was viewed as the most talented player in his draft class. Drew's got huge power now. I mean, at 14 years old, he was working out here in Arizona at the the Angels Spring Training Stadium. And some of the other guys from this class in the last couple of draft classes were there. Um, And he was putting balls out of a big league stadium at age 14 in BP and has his his father's defensive acumen and he's a big strong strapping kid in that like Fernando Tatis Luis Robert physical mold it was just we it was weird over the summer showcase circuit when he's facing most of the other best kids in his class the guys who throw harder than the average pitcher he will see during his senior season like playing varsity ball at his high school so like, this is an important window for evaluation and he wasn't pulling the ball at all so is there something that maybe needs to be tweaked, 
swing-wise to ensure that he's not vulnerable at the very top of the strike zone, maybe, you know, to unlock all of the power, maybe. But just in terms of the foundation that this guy has, tools-wise, the defensive the piece of it, which ups his floor to some degree, uh, and just the ceiling if you do unlock everything with a swing tweak. But he's in that Buxton area. Everyone knew there was some hit tool risk with Buxton, but everything else was just so huge that nobody really cared. Now, Houston didn't go that way. They took Carlos Correa. Uh, and so it's possible that we have Michael Elias at the top of this draft with Baltimore was the scouting director in Houston for that Buxton Correa draft. Uh, and his MO has been to cut an under slot deal, spread the bonus around, have a big class on the whole rather than just taking maybe the best guy. Uh, so we don't really know who's going to go one. But Drew, from a talent standpoint, absolutely belongs one. Jackson Holiday. The name is familiar because Matt Holiday finished, I feel like, finished playing like a week ago. And now his son's getting ready to get drafted. And I'm so old and it, it pains me to think about these things. But uh, I, I want to hear about him. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this in this class. Matt yeah. Holiday's kid, Carl Crawford's kid. Uh, it's going to continue to happen, folks. But yeah, Jackson Holiday. I had him in the, in the middle of the first round coming out of last fall. And then he's another one where came to Arizona during his spring break to take BP and work out for teams during spring training. It was really smart because when you look over at one field and there's everyone's A-ball kids, and then you look over at this field and here's Jackson Holiday and his younger brother, by the way, who will probably go very high two drafts from now. You know, you look apples to apples at these players who are the same age, and Jackson Holiday's putting – balls out of a big league stadium into the teeth of the wind and was as successful from a bat to ball perspective uh, on that summer showcase circuit as any other high schooler uh, and has a better chance to stay at shortstop than most of them. He absolutely belongs in in the top five. And, you know, he, I think is, you know, two or three, uh, depending on how you feel about him, Tramar Johnson, Brooks Lee, holidays, definitely in that area. Now you just mentioned the name Tramar Johnson. You got to help me here. So I, I, have heard from people with teams and who cover the draft like this is an unbelievable kid and they, like just talking to him you want everything in life for this guy we also know that it's one of the prettiest swings that scouts have seen in years and the offensive profile for a high schooler is very low risk to hit for average but I see a short guy who will play second and normally that's not a profile out of high school that I see at the top of the board so what am I missing here I think it's not all that different than Riley Green or Jared Kelnick at the time where you just felt so safe and warm. They had performed so well against all the best kids. Kelnick was older than, than the rest of them, but, but otherwise, even if you thought, eh, maybe they play center field or in, in Johnson's case, shortstop, but probably move to a corner or in Johnson's case, second base, you still felt, a certain stability with, with that player and knew that if things broke in the right direction, that there was huge ceiling. And that's how I think about Jamar Johnson. And uh, if he went to college, if he came to Arizona state somehow, he'd be their starting shortstop. He's good enough from like a hands and actions standpoint that he can play there right now. And he should probably develop there uh, primarily just to see, but yeah, his size, which is to say that he is short and already at this age, his, his body's pretty maxed out. This is not like 
Drew Jones or Elijah Green or Jackson Holiday, where there's room for 15, 20 pounds uh, before you start to slow down. And so you don't know if Jonathan will, there's, there's like small risk that he falls all the way down the, def- the defensive spectrum just because of how all of us tend to age into our 20s. We get bigger. Uh, so th- there's a little bit risk there. But just in terms of the confidence in the hit tool and how much playable power there is, and yeah, he's such a wonderful young guy. Uh, everyone is in, and I, he'll be somewhere squarely in the middle of my overall 100 as these draft guys migrate to the, to the pro lists. Eric, with the Nats at five, is there a chance that either Elijah Green or Brooks Lee ends up uh, right there for them to select? And I'd love for comparisons between those two. One of the best college bats against a guy you mentioned, size, 6'3", 225, that can hit the ball that far, doesn't grow on trees. Yeah, so I think, I think there's a chance Green goes as high as three. Um, he has swung and missed quite a bit in high school. Like, it's rare for us to have so much, as much high school data as we do for someone like Elijah Green, who not only do we have all the showcases up, but we have all his IMG Academy statistics. And uh, he's swinging and missing at a rate that if you were a college player, it would be kind of concerning. It would be in like a Bobby Dahlbeck area where you think, well, there's just so much power here. He's probably going to play some sort of role, but he's, you know, strike out like 40% of the time. Uh, So it's possible that that is what Elijah Green is, except in center field. But also, if you can get the back-to-ball stuff in a serviceable area, then he's just the star-level player. He can have a 40-hit tool, play a good center field, and if he hits for enough power, like, he's still an incredible player. So um, I think Brooks Lee, it's switch hitting shortstop. He's had some injury stuff in high school, back pretty severe. Part of why he ended up going to college is because teams were scared of his medical coming out of high school. So uh, that's pretty interesting. But man, he's, you know, he can play a viable middle infield and he's a college performing switch hitter with rare power for a middle infielder. Like that sounds really good. So uh, I think that as those five guys who we've mentioned put the Nats in a spot where that's like tier one or maybe it's tier one, Drew, and everyone else is in tier two. But if they wanted to, if they felt confidence in, uh, you know, if Elijah Green is there, like, as long as you don't think he won't hit at all, right, then he can just be your guy. They can kind of sit there in this, like, catbird seat where they can kind of hang out and probably end up with someone here in Tier 2. Breaking down the top of the draft, the Nats are on the clock at number five, getting you some insight on these prospects with Eric Longenhagen. You should check him out in fan graphs. He just wrote about the Nats system. In fact, we'll ask him about that in a moment. So just to double down on, on this idea of the fifth pick here, I wanted to start with you giving our listeners those uh, analytical points on a lot of these players so that they kind of have profiles with names. If you wouldn't mind and we got a lot of time here, a lot of hours and a lot of boards still being put together before the draft comes, but just workshopping it right now, what you think could happen in the top five and and who's going to be there for them. Do you think Drew Jones to the Orioles at one? And then what does that mean for the Diamondbacks at two through that fifth pick? I Baltimore, again, Baltimore is their GM has done things the other way. Historically, they cut deals with guys under slot and then spread that bonus out to the rest of their picks. So you only have so much pool space, right? I'm sure listeners probably know this much, right? 
that if you have a, you have a bonus slot at one, let's say it's 10 million. If you agree to a $7 million deal with someone at one, it gives you $3 million more to play with in your like bonus pool space for that draft. And so Mikey Elias's tendency has been cut a deal, spread the bonus pool out to other guys. And that's helped them get Cody Mayo and Carter Baumler and, you know, do have a deeper farm system rather than just putting all your eggs in fewer baskets. Uh, So I don't know if they are going to take Andrew Jones. Uh, I like Pittsburgh last year, Baltimore just seems like they're going to not tell anyone. It is a very small group of people who are ultimately making this decision and only they and the player representatives that they're talking to at the very end, right before the pick is made, are the ones who are going to know until we know right before draft time. Probably. Probably. Um, I do think Drew will go one or two, that if he doesn't go one and Baltimore does cut a deal with someone, that the Diamondbacks will just take him second. Uh, and then Texas at three is where things start to become interesting. I do think Elijah Green is actually in their mix at three. That's sort of against type for them the last couple of years as they've kind of moved away from that and, and more into the Josh Young, like college performer types of the world a little bit earlier. Um, Cam Collier's name is the son of Lou Collier, former big leaguer, uh, utility guy. Cam sort of took the Bryce Harper path where he left high school early, went to a junior college. He's quite good as well. He could sneak up into this area, uh, left-handed hitting third baseman with a plus-plus arm, really performed as a very young for the you know, the draft class guy. And then again, against junior college pitching, he's like 17 and a half and, and, you know, raking against junior college arms in the Southeast. Like that's pretty good. Uh, So, you know, he's also sort of sneaking up into this mix, I think, especially teams that are model driven uh, and really care about player age on draft day. Uh, That, that would be Pittsburgh at four. I think that, you know, you might see, see a way that he enters into their mix. Uh, But I do think that, the way uh, things set up for Washington is that unless, again, they might have a divergent opinion about any one of these guys, and if that is who is left staring them in the face, then there might be a reason for them to get creative. This is a deep enough draft class that, you know, if your pocket gets picked, you feel like you're the first team picking in that next tier of guys that whoever from that tier of guys that will cut the best deal for you that's who you should take. And then that gives you more money. Try to coax a player down from the 25 to 30 area back to your second pick at 45. And maybe you end up with a high school pitcher that you ordinarily wouldn't have because they were, you call their agent and you say, Hey, I saved 2 million with my first pick. I got an extra 1.5 for your guy. Ask everybody for 4 million. And if all those teams picking at the back of the first round and in the comp round balk at that, then you have an extra guy. Uh, but, you know, I don't think there's a reason for the Nats to necessarily proactively be that creative uh, just because I like that first five group of players. So, Eric, here's something I'm obsessed with. Um, I was a college player myself 20 years ago. I was not the kind of guy that you would have written about. If someone suggested, you would have just said no, and that would have been the end of the meeting. But college <laughs> pitching is ridiculous. 
at this point. I mean, I remember it was a huge deal when we faced like that one guy that threw 95 miles an hour. Now that's like a midweek reliever um, that, that you know, it has an ERA of 9 or 10. I feel like college pitching has never been nastier. It's unbelievable. There's the, the highlights that you see, and then you're watching the lead-ups to the College World Series, etc. And yet... No college pitchers really towards the top of the board. You got to get down into the twenties, according to most folks, to find that. It's a dichotomy that I can't quite wrap my head around. Injuries, I'd lo- man. I, I, yeah, I'd love for you to kind of give us a state of the union. The why, just just educate us. Yeah, it's such a fascinating development. There are lots of different. In my mind, there are lots of different variables that are contributing to this. Some of it is just the way pitching usage at the big league level is being spread out. That for sure you still have your elite top of the rotation guys that, but driving the middle of your rotation to pitch 200 plus innings isn't a thing anyone's doing anymore. All of those innings are getting spread out across guys with option years, long relievers. And so I think the way I'm trying to project pitching is a little bit like that, where you want to try to envision what types of roles everyone can play. So that's one thing. And then the injury portion of it is is also a factor. Pitchers just tend to get hurt in ways that have a meaningful impact on their prospectum. And it's, it happens all the time. Uh, it's happened with many of the, the top pro- pitching prospects in baseball over the last 10 years with, you know, Brent Honeywell and A.J. Puck and Alex Reyes. Like, the list is really long. Sixto Sanchez. Um, and so it just would be foolish to continue to value players in that area. They're becoming the running backs of the baseball draft. And uh, the other portion of it is the player development piece, which is you can really change pitchers and do it fast. So Cleveland's draft class last year, they took a ton of college pitchers who didn't throw very hard. They just had good command and like four distinct pitches often. And by the fall, just a couple months after they had had them under their wing, so many of these guys were touching 96 when they were sitting 88 to 91 at like UC Irvine. And, you know, Tanner Bibby, who I saw sit 86 to 89 one day at Fullerton, has been sitting 94 to 97 this year, like less than 12 months from when he was drafted. Velocity is just the easiest thing to develop anymore because of driveline baseball our general understanding of biomechanics has changed and so all of these different things are operating independent of one another but they're changing uh all at the same time and uh, so a bunch of these things have had a knock-on effect where the industry values pitching less you need more pitching you need more depth because so many of these guys are getting hurt, teams understand that now, and so they're, they're valuing the player population in that way. You need all this pitching depth. Think about all the moves that the Rays make on the, the roster margin, claiming guys on waivers, you know, that they throw in their bullpen for a little while and throw their slider 60% of the time. Like, you just need all the pitching, but at the same time, Tyler Glass now gets hurt, and Chris Archer gets hurt and then isn't the same. And, you know, not everyone is Justin Verlander. So uh, here in this draft, we have a bunch of guys who have gotten Tommy John. We have one guy who had a PED suspension and didn't pitch the whole year. Uh, we have a, you know, the highest profile amateur pitcher of the last decade whose medical got whacked last year, and now he's thrown hard again, but no one's really sure what to do. And so with all these nice you know, up-the-middle college performers and these, you know, these huge 
college outfielders with, with big power but weird swings. Like, they're every bit as risky as the high school pitcher who just had Tommy John. And, you know, so they're just sort of in the mix with these groups of guys who have all fallen in this year's draft while the industry is generally starting to value them a little bit differently. That's a great breakdown. And there's a lot of moving parts, but it's it's well said and a lot of food for thought there for our listeners here on Bustin' Loose Baseball. All right, I want to ask you before we let you go about the system, because you actually wrote a piece we talked about last week here on the show, which was about the Nat system, kind of an updated top 29. And I follow their system really closely, and, and by, this is my favorite ranking that I've seen in terms of like moving guys to where they, they maybe should be. So for, for what it's worth, from one dumb guy's opinion, good job. Uh, I like where Jeremy De La Rosa, you moved up. I, I like that Brixie's starting to get a little attention, uh, who has had a really nice year in AA. I'm curious, though, when you look at this system, is it as bad as we are all kind of worrying that it is after the drop-off of the, the top handful of guys? Yeah, I mean, some of it is just that the the org has taken the posture it has the last handful of years where they were buyers and they were competing. Um, some of it is Josiah Green and Kiebert Ruiz just aren't on here, right? Uh, but, but yeah, it's the nationals from my perspective, and it's much harder for me to get a real feel for the way they go about it, living in Arizona, being at our complexes here and not at the ones in Florida, right? Where you're surround player dev people all the time and you get to know people in the Oregon, the way they go about it. But from afar, the nationals are probably on the very low end of teams in terms of incorporating analytics, you know, uh, building the technological infrastructure that would allow you to take advantage of some of the, the biomechanical advances uh, in understanding that have occurred. You know, like it takes time to like build a, a lab and stuff like that, put a camera array at your spring training stadium. That's, you know, tracking everyone's kinetic movement. Like this, this is what the giants are doing. Right. But I don't think it's what the nationals necessarily are doing. And so the teams that you see doing that stuff seem to be able to, develop pitching. They are the ones who have been more interested in that uh, over the last 10 years or so. And so they are a little bit ahead and they take pitching and make it better. And so the nationals haven't really been able to do that. Even some of these really young, interesting guys like Andre Lara, uh, they haven't really gotten much better. Uh, I do think that the nationals are good at picking them, that they find a way to like hit on picks and guys in trades uh, at a rate that is abnormally high, and that would seem to also point to their, you know, their boots on the ground scouting team, uh, and they have to have like a lot of confidence in an individual that way to like make a trade where they get a couple guys back from Oakland and just to make sure that they're pieces that are going to contribute. Um, like think about think about the think about Taylor Trammell. Grant, for sure there were times I was on the phone with you after a trade deadline, and we were like, hey, Caleb Trammell is one of the best prospects that was traded at this deadline, right? And then it happened two years in a row. Like three straight years we had that conversation, I feel like. Right. And it just wasn't, you know, he just couldn't hit a big league fastball there right away, and he's trying to adjust, and we'll see how things play out. But we were all too high on him just because he couldn't hit those top of his own big league fastballs, and that was it. But, like, the Nationals – don't tend to 
to miss on guys in that same way. But at the same time, like Jackson Rutledge hasn't really gotten any better. He's still an A ball. That's kind of weird. Like, there's just all sorts of weird stuff like Matt Cronin. All these older guys are they're like at levels lower than you would think. Uh, I write about that in the system overview on on the piece where it's like I'm not really sure what's going on here. I'm sure they have internal benchmarks for promotion, but at some point, some of these older guys, you just have to see if they're good enough to put on your 40 man or not, and you gotta like hit the gas with promoting them a little bit, and they just don't tend to do that. Like they tend to do the opposite of that sometimes. Uh, like why is Tim Kate Nabal? What's going on? Did he do something? <laughs> I've heard his name, it feels like, for nine years. And then I look up a Wilmington box score, and I'm like, oh, someone else with the name Kate. Oh, like, my oh, God, they made Wilmington the AAA affiliate. No, they didn't. <laughs> right. Like, at some point, I get it. If Tim Kate isn't great, I think Tim Kate's fine. Like, he's an athletic lefty with three pitches. His breaking ball has good depth. Like, he's probably a fringe roster guy at, at the very least. Again, you need pitch so much pitching depth. But at some point, I want to know if that's true or not, and he should just be at Rochester. Uh, so I don't know. There's, it's, a hard, it's a hard system to wrap your head around. I do like a bunch of the guys that they've traded for, like the guys that they traded for last summer at the deadline. Some of the guys they've drafted, T.J. White. T.J. White's – I don't know if T.J. White's going to be able to hit up upper-level pitching, but his tools are ridiculous for where they drafted him and, and what his bonus was. Like, that's a great pick. Already, I think, you know, even if he never is a big leaguer, in my mind already, that's a good pick. But in terms of the developmental piece of it and their ability to build the same depth that some of these best orgs can, it just doesn't seem to be there. Um, yeah, you know, like Zach Brecky, I like him a lot. He was on the list last year already just because, again, like, look at this guy's fastball carry on paper and then go watch him and go, wow, look at how big and athletic this guy is. Look at how great his arm action is. And the way his fastball is blowing past people, like I'm putting this guy on the list. So you can integrate both things, but he doesn't have slider command yet. He could probably have a better breaking ball than he does. Like these are the things that aren't getting done here. I don't think, um, but yeah, the top of the system is still pretty exciting. Eric, really informative stuff, man. Appreciate the conversation, man. Be well. Thank you. You guys too. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Speaking of the Nats system, before we get to Keith Law for just a second, I wanted to congratulate Cade Cavalli, who I talked to this weekend. He's going to the Futures game. Very cool. Pitching in L.A. Second straight year he'll be in the Futures game. And Darren Baker. This is Dusty Sun, A-plus level. I don't think he's a high-end prospect or a guy that's going to be a big leaguer for an extended period of time. Certainly not a starter for the Nationals. But he is a 
gym rat type. You know, you want him in every clubhouse. He's a guy that makes whatever level he's at better. And he's Dusty's kid, so he's got to be awesome. I remember watching him get saved by uh, J.T. Snow in a World Series game. Uh, is it J.T. Snow? Did I say that? Yeah, I think that's who it was. Was it was it Jeff Kent, J.T. No, Snow? Who did J- it? Is J.T. Snow the right name? That sounds like I'm making up a name. No, that's it. Okay, then it was him. Isn't J.T. It? Snow saved him. Now I'm play. doubting myself. That's J.T. Snow. For some reason, I'm thinking of the wrestler Al Snow somehow is involved it's in definitely this. definitely not Al Snow with the mannequin head. Okay. But uh, anyway, Darren Baker's going to the Futures game as well. I was a little surprised by that. I wanted the rep on the hitting side to be Jeremy De La Rosa, who's having a, a hell of a year for the Nats at Fredericksburg. But uh, regardless, congrats to those two guys. That's awesome. And Dusty will be managing the American League on Tuesday in the All-Star game. And Darren will be playing for the American League on Saturday in the Futures game. Yeah, it's neat. That, that's one of those really cool things. And, I, and I'm, listen, I'm, I'm not stupid. I know that's why they did it. Uh, just, you know, a nice way to celebrate kind of the longevity and, and the legacy. Because that's really what this year is about in, in terms of the top of the draft board. We'll talk to Keith Law in a minute about this. But it's like, sons of former big leaguers, welcome to the top of the draft board. Sons of, you know, b- former big leaguer and major league legend Dusty Baker. Now Darren Baker, they're going to the Futures game. Very cool. All right, speaking of Keith Law, let's get to it. This was our conversation with the athletics expert on the draft and on prospects. Wanted to talk to him about one of the biggest weekends of the calendar year for the Nationals. They got a lot to do, and they got to get it right coming up this weekend. This was our convo with Keith. When it comes to the draft, two prospects, one of the guys whose opinion I care about the most is Keith Law. Forever he was at ESPN, and you've seen him all over draft coverage, and now he does an incredible job with The Athletic, and you should be reading his content as we get closer to two of the big prospects days of the year with the amateur side, the draft, and on the professional side, the Futures game this weekend. Keith Grant and Danny here in D.C. for Bustin' Loose Baseball. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing Great, really buddy. well. All right, let's just start with the top of the draft board. So the Nats pick at five. Give our Nats fan listeners a little idea of what we should be paying attention to with the teams on the clock ahead of them. So a pretty good chance that three of the four, maybe all four picks ahead of them, are high school guys. Andrew Jones's kid, certainly going ahead of them. Matt Holiday's kid, extremely likely to go ahead of them. Um, pretty good chance that Termar Johnson, who folks say it's the best pure high school hitter, just hitter for contact and average that people have seen in 10-plus years, not 100%, but a good chance that they, he goes ahead of them. There, is, there are not a lot of scenarios where I see one of the high school guys whom the Nets would consider – potentially getting to them. Like, I think if Drew Jones got there, if Jackson Holiday got there, I think they would jump out of their shoes to take one of those guys. But all the assumptions, and I, I'm speaking for myself, but also for you know the other folks I respect who do this sort of stuff, we all seem to think the Nats are going to go a different direction because the few high school guys they'd consider are gone, and there is no pitcher who's healthy who they would be likely to take at five. So does that mean higher floor college bat there, Keith? Or, and walk me through who that might be. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm hearing. The name that they've been linked to all spring pretty consistently, and the Nats generally do not hide their interest in players. Some teams do, like Baltimore. They pick first, and they're pretty cagey. Um, is Kevin Prada, the catcher at uh, Georgia Tech, who is an offense-first catcher. He can really hit. He's got power. He's got a good idea of the strike zone. He's adequate behind the plate. I don't know if he really switches positions. I think he can stay there, but it would be just a – hey, this is one of the best players available. And I do think there's a pretty good argument he's the best college position player in the class. It's him or Brooks Lee, shortstop at Cal Poly, 
who's uh, not going to stay at shortstop, but can also really hit. And when I've asked around on that, what I keep hearing is the Nats would take Parada even over Lee if Lee got there, and Lee may go ahead of them. And if they didn't do that, then they'd be moving probably further down the college list of other, again, kind of low-ceiling, high-floor players just to try to get some value into the system, which I can understand. They really went for it last year, taking Brady House, and unfortunately, Dalen Lyle is hurt, but House was a big swing for the fences, pun slightly intended there. And so far, so good. When House has been healthy, he's looked really good in low A. So I look at their current situation, right? And and I never draft based on what's at the big league level, right? And I think people mm-hmm. need to know that. Because there's a lot of people listening that are used to the NFL draft or other sports, and they're going, well, the one position offensively maybe where they're in pretty good shape is catcher with K. Barrett Ruiz. They have mm-hmm. needs almost everywhere else. What would be your thought to, you know, with Parada kind of being a, a quick mover because of the bat, like whether or not that should factor into the conversation at all or maybe break a tie with a Brooks Lee type and kind of go into to that part of this process because it is quite literally he and Josiah Gray come over from the Dodgers like they might have something with Luis Garcia at second base he can't really play short but he sh- certainly can rake they don't have many spots where they got future options you know Juan Soto's locked in Kbert's locked in what are your thoughts on that I tend to agree with you you just take the best player available and you figure it out especially with catchers I like Keeper Ruiz. I had him as a top 50 or so prospect at the time of the trade. I think he's probably their catcher for the long term, but catchers get hurt a lot, and catchers often don't develop as expected because the wear and tear, a general wear and tear of the position is so much. I mean, it's the, probably the hardest position we ask anyone to play on either side of the ball right now because you're, you're, being a catcher is itself kind of a full-time job in addition to being a major league hitter, which is also a full-time job. So I am – more inclined to say, no, you can have taking an extra catcher is fine because also you can get to the point where you can trade that guy. Would you want to pass on a guy? If you think Parada is clearly the best player on the board at your pick, would you want to pass on that guy to take a player who is just less valuable simply because you think he fits better? Whereas, you know, in six months you could put Parada in a trade and maybe go get somebody. And you know Mike Rizzo would do something like that, would say, hey, we'll get a bunch of these guys, go out, boom, make a big trade this offseason. Hey, suddenly we're relevant again. I don't think Mike Rizzo is sitting around waiting for a five-year rebuild here. I think he's going to just get enough talent into the system so that he can go out and try to build another contender as quickly as possible. That is certainly his uh, entire history as a GM, and I think that he would do that. And getting Parada into the system would advance that in that direction. If there was... Look, Drew Jones isn't getting there. I don't think Jackson Holly is getting there. But in some bizarro universe, yeah, they'll do that. Because that would be, let's just take the best player available. Yeah, Jackson Holiday's probably four years in the big leagues. But if he's the best player on the board, they would still take him. I think the problem where the Nats pick is the high school guys they absolutely agree on are going to be gone. And I, like, I don't think they're on Termar Johnson. That's very much not a Mike Rizzo type of player, too. Termar Johnson's 5'8". in heels. So... You know, Mike, they don't <laughs> take guys who look like that. I love Jamar Johnson. I'm pretty short, too, so that's okay. But they don't take guys like that. And I, for whatever reason, a lot of people thought they would be big on Elijah Green, a very athletic, very physical dad's a former NFL that player. That was actually the guy that I kind of lined up for them months ago, but it hasn't really materialized yeah. that way. It, they're not on it. And I'm, I'm not arguing with them. I think a lot of us thought, hey, that's their type, but 
maybe it's just because picking five, they figure there's more probability with some of these other guys. And I like Elijah Green. I think Elijah Green has gone from being overrated as an underclassman because he was just so big to kind of underrated. People are concerned, well, there's some swing and miss in the zone. Yeah, there is. But playing at IMG, you also face much better pitching than at just about any other high school in the country. And it's not like he is Joey Gallo swing and miss in the zone. I saw Gallo in high school where Green is better than that. And why have we all, it's just like the pendulum has swung way too far in the other direction. But if you're the Nats picking five, you may say that is a level of risk we are unwilling to stomach. And I'm not going to argue with that. I, I completely understand saying, no, we, we want to lock something in with a pick that high. Keith Law with us here on Bust and Lose Baseball, breaking down prospects. Keith, if there's a surprise in that top five, who would it be? Who, what team might sort of zig when everybody else is zagging? Obviously, shoot the moon here. Well, it's Baltimore, right? Because they don't tell anybody. Baltimore is Mike Elias, Zig Mandel, who's been, those two were in Houston. And when they picked first in Houston multiple times, we never really knew for sure where they were taking until five minutes before the pick. That's what's going to happen this year. We are not going to know. And because this is a draft without an absolute no doubt 1-1, we will have Drew Jones at the top of our boards. But I think the consensus in the industry, and my personal opinion, having seen that player, having seen Jones and most of these other players, is that, Jones is very good. He is not head and shoulders above the whole rest of the class. And it may make more sense for Baltimore, just two extra picks in addition to the first pick of every round, to say, we're going to cut a deal with some other player, save some money, and then go get additional first-round talents with some of our subsequent picks. I might pursue that, too. If Drew Jones wants full slot, um, and he's advised by Scott Boris, which Boris doesn't generally cut deals. That's not his strategy as an agent. Baltimore could do that. They could absolutely do that. And nobody really knows for sure who the other names are. We just have guesses. I had a mock that went up this morning and I have my educated guesses as to who's in their mix, but we don't really know for sure. So they could do something like take Cam Collier, the Juco player who's 17, who played extremely well. His dad was Lou Collier, played in the big leagues. If they did something like that, I almost guarantee you they would save plenty of money to go get two more first-round talents with subsequent picks. But boy, does that throw a wrench into everybody's mocks. And if you're Washington, you're probably praying for a scenario like that because it could push someone down to you you didn't think had any chance to get to your pick. There's some poor kid at the top of the first-round mix whose dad's a teacher who's like, Looking around, going, wait, 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 am I supposed to be here? Is there a Awkward. rule at the top of the first round? That's pretty crazy. Keith Law, the Athletic, check out the latest mock. So I've got two guys I want to ask you about. It may or may not pertain to the Nationals, it, it, and that would be Jackson Holiday and Jacob mm-hmm. Berry. So on, on Hol- I'm going to give you quick takes, and I basically want to just see it blow me out of the water if I'm wrong. I actually like Holiday second best in this class to Jones because I actually mm-hmm. think he everyone talks about Tamar Johnson who I love but he's going to be at second and I think Holiday can hit like bat to ball every bit as well as Tamar Johnson I know that the swing isn't quite as sexy but I want to get your thought on that and then the other question is Barry who I've just been fascinated by all season now I heard from someone this week his exit velocity numbers are not what you would want, and maybe that's worrying some analytically driven teams. Like, I thought he'd be a lock in that top five or six mix. Now you're seeing him in some places out of the top ten. Just give me thoughts on those two guys. Uh, Well, let me start with Barry. Um, He can hit some. He has no position. Like, I look at him, and I think this is Seth Beer all over again. Beer went at the end of the first round and shouldn't have. In hindsight, he really hasn't been good enough to justify that. And I just – I have a real antipathy towards – guys with no position in the first round. You want to take that guy later? 
Absolutely. Right. The, once you get out of the first round, the opportunity cost of a pick is much lower. But Barry, I have people in the LSU coaching staff, not said to me personally, but to people I know, we can't play this guy anywhere defensively. So are you, and, are you saying basically like legit DH? That's what I think. I wow. think long term, right? You take Barry, you put him in pro ball and you try him, right? You absolutely try and players get better on defense in pro ball. But if you're asking me, hey, here, put $100 on a future position for this guy, I'm putting it on DH. And that wow. would scare me, especially picking that high. Yeah. I do think Barry has a, may very well go in the top 10. They got him going 10th to Colorado. But man, you got to play a position. If, and, and I got to feel pretty confident you're going to play somewhere in absent value. Termar Johnson, Brooks Lee, they're not shortstops long term. They're going to play on the dirt, right? We know they're going to play somewhere in the infield. Lee's got the hands for it. Johnson's too good an athlete, I think, for him to not play second base. Or at worst, he could probably play center field and still produce value. I'm kind of with you on Holiday, and I think the one thing that's holding Holiday back just a little bit is that he didn't come into the year like that. He changed. But, I mean, he's a high school kid. They do that. He changed his swing a little bit, changed his body a bit. There's a much better chance he stays at shortstop. He's hitting the ball a lot harder. I think his swing is great. I think Termar had had more like a longer ramp into this, right? We saw him, everybody saw him last year. God, that's an amazing swing. This guy hits everything. If you think Termar's got the best pure hit tool in the high school group, and I'm not going to argue with that, Holiday might be second, and that's pretty good. And that's for a guy who stays at shortstop and is pretty athletic and is more physical. It doesn't hurt that his dad played for a very long time in the big leagues. Heck, Jackson's got a younger brother coming along in three years, Ethan, who might be even better. He's like Jackson, but already more physical than Jackson was at the same age. So I have no objection to somebody saying, hey, Jackson Holiday should go first on a deal. And I think if Drew Jones goes first, there's a really good chance Holiday goes second to Arizona. I think Arizona's just basically sitting there with arms wide open. Whichever one of these guys you don't want, Jones or Holiday, we'll just scoop the other one up and be very, very happy. Keith, I know you've had a chance to see the Wilmington squad. Give us a kind of a primer of what you've seen and maybe somebody that's uh, off the radar that probably should be on the radar. It's not great. Um, the best Nationals prospects right now, I think, by and large, are in low A. Um, I've seen pretty much everyone Wilmington has to offer, except for Mitchell Parker. I just sort of keep – I was actually in the ballpark one time when he was supposed to pitch, and we got rained out. Um, so it is not great. I do – uh, they've got some interesting arms. Jose Ferrer, left-hander, who's got two pretty good pitches. Um, hasn't been here for very long, but I also don't think he'll be here for very long. I think they should just keep him moving up because straight reliever, but it's pretty big stuff. He's got a chance to be something. Um, Merahildo, I'm blanking on his first name. I want to say Oscar, but I think that's actually not right. He, um, he doesn't belong here because he's too old for the level, but I think he can really hit. Um, He's a little thick-bodied. I don't think he's going to stay at third base. But there's some feel to hit. There's some power. Second time through the level, really want to see him prove it as he moves up to double A, especially since, like I said, he was repeating. But he is probably the best guy in the lineup right now. It is not great. Most of the pitching has already moved up. Last year, we had a really good rotation to start the year in Wilmington. Those guys have all since moved up or unfortunately gotten hurt. And the like Brady House, like I mentioned, he's at Fredericksburg, really hoping he gets here before we get to the end of the year because I think uh, he would immediately be the most interesting. He'd be the best prospect, also the most interesting player in the lineup. But for right now, Wilmington, unfortunately, it's a lot of guys like Yasel Antuna and Darren Baker who are just going to be good players in the organization for a while but are never going to impact the major league team. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that, and they got a lot of work to do, and it can start again with the draft this coming weekend. Great insight, great info from Keith Law. Keith, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for hopping on. Yep, my pleasure. That was Keith Law. Thanks to him and Eric Longenhagen for joining us on this episode of Boston Loose Baseball. It was a lot of info. Take your medicine there, Nats fans. A little bit of sugar coating, but yes, we got it. That's a lot of information. I now feel way more up to date and kind of relevant on A, the Nats system, B, draft picks at the top of the draft, or draft prospects rather, at the top of the draft board. The wild card, it's funny to say, but it is Baltimore. Right, I mean, they're a team that doesn't do it the way everyone else does, and there's probably really good reason for that, and that's why this group, all of a sudden, the Major League Club has kind of hit its stride, winning a whole bunch of games in a row. They got a good system as well with some high end stuff. It's it certainly worked for them, but it's going to be really interesting to see what the Nats do at five. I think they break tight, and the Orioles do the thing everyone thinks they're going to do, and they just take Drew Jones at one one, and the draft starts at pick number two with the Diamondbacks. One selection later. My dream, and we could talk more about this later in the week, is that Jackson Holiday falls to the Nats. Matt Holiday's kid. I think he stays at shortstop. I think he could end up being the best hitter in this class. I would be giddy about that. You would then have uh, House at third with Jackson Holiday at short. Luis Garcia maybe at second. You can find yourself a first baseman with Soto anchor in your outfield. That ain't bad. You got the beginning of something being built here potentially, but probably unlikely. We'll see what they end up. Uh, having the option to do it number five. More on the draft, more on the Futures game coming up later this week, and we'll get into some big league conversations about the Mariners and Julio Rodriguez, the Julio Show, in town as well. Thanks for listening to Bustin' Loose Baseball. We are back on Thursday night. Until then, enjoy Nats baseball.